Welcome to this episode of Tea with Triggy. It's great to have you here. This is a podcast where I catch up with friends and people that I find fascinating. I check that they're doing okay and ask for tips to help our stay at home more comfortable. My guest today is so multi-talented. He's a singer, a guitarist, a manager, a record producer. He topped the charts with one of my favourite songs, World Without Love, in the UK and in the US. It was written by Paul McCartney. He is my friend, the one and only Peter Asher. Hi, Peter. Hi, Twiggy. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Excited to be here. Oh, thank you for doing this. I'll have to tell everyone, I'm, I'm in Sussex and Peter is in... I'm in Malibu, California. Is it gorgeous? It is gorgeous, yeah. It's, it's very nice here. I mean, there are, there are much worse places to be locked down in, that's for sure. I say, I know. I know it well. It's a gorgeous house. And have the fires affected you? Um, they're quite far away, but but sometimes when they were at their worst, you can smell them, and mm. and occasionally, depending on the wind, it, suddenly there's ash all over the cars and stuff like that. Wow. Even if it's many miles away, you know, because it goes, the smoke kind of goes up and s- swims around the atmosphere and lands in weird places. So it, 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 one is aware of it, but we've never been in any imminent danger. Good. No. Well, please God, it carries on like that. I think most, from what we've heard on the British news, that most of them seem to be up in northern California and Oregon. Exactly. No, so it's a long, it, the, the really bad ones are a long, long way from us. But, but as I say, one is still conscious of them, even in terms of occasionally yeah. smelling the smoke because it, it, it fills the whole atmosphere. Yeah, yeah I, do, I do remember when we were living out there, occasionally we had some fires. Anyway, what cup of tea have you got? To have tea uh, with me. A cup of PG tips, of and, course, and exactly, <laughs> and and of course for me it, this is morning, so it's it's a morning cup of tea with toast and marmite rather than the scones and jam that of course Wendy serves every afternoon promptly at uh, four o'clock. And cucumber sandwiches, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> you've you've never lost your Englishness. Well, I don't know. I think some of it may have rubbed off a bit, but yes. <laughs> How long is it since you've actually lived in England? Gosh, lived. I suppose I, I officially moved to America in 1970. Wow. Um, so a long time. And actually, I was in the most, I was in London. That was the last trip I made before all this happened. I, I was actually, uh, I had an upcoming trip that I was planned for a while, some social thing and some, some meetings. And this was just all beginning. And I had to decide whether to go to London or not. And I did decide to fly. But within a few days, Everything had got a lot worse, and suddenly uh, I cancelled everything and realised that if I didn't fly back to LA right away, this was in March, yeah. that I, I might never have the chance to do so. And I arrived just in time for all that business where they took your temperatures, you came off the plane, oh, and wow. you filled in this very kind of homemade-looking form that they'd just come up with, you know, saying, I feel fine and all that kind of stuff, and haven't left Los Angeles since. Which is, that was March. I know, because... You know, just so people know, we've known each other many years and we are, I think, good friends. And I know that you spend most of your life, well, a lot of your life traveling, right? You travel more than anyone I know, I think. It it seems that way. One reason or another, yeah, I do seem to travel a lot. And and, and yes, it seems odd to have been here solidly from from March, yes. But that must have some upsides, just to relax a bit and... 
Exactly. It's fine. I mean, there are some things that I can still carry on doing that I do, but, but I also, you know, originally I had a, a quite a number of, of gigs booked, uh, for this year and I was even hosting a couple of cruises and they didn't happen. You can be sure of that. Wow. So, so, uh, and they're supposed to happen now next year. Yeah, because all the cruise ships got kind of a lot got left out at sea, didn't they? Pass- some of them did. Yeah, some of them just couldn't get off. Some of them did. Yeah, and they they sort of quarantined them on board, mm. kind of thing. It was all weird. And now they're all busy trying to hammer out the rules to get cruises going again next year, because of course that's a huge industry that's oh, just totally at a at a standstill. You know, it's a multi-billion dollar industry i think isn't it exactly it, it is it certainly is and and of course the same applies to all of us or to musicians overall because you know eat they, they have there are no gigs you know every no. people who relied on gigs as their primary source of income it is just completely gone yeah i'm going to take you back a little bit to when you you grew up in england right Indeed, I did. Yes. And did you did you did you go to a theatrical school or? No, because not at all. Because you were a child actor, weren't you? Yes. We we what happened was, um, but I have two sisters, uh, mm-hmm. Jane, two years younger than me, yeah. and Claire, two years younger again, and we got signed up uh, very young. An an agent by the name of Valerie Glynn apparently saw us, and I think it was probably not on the basis of our acting ability. That's for sure. I think it was the the three of us were sort of graded in height. You know, at that time I was eight, Jane was six, and Claire was four, Aww. and we all had the bright red hair. So. So I think it was on that basis, perhaps envisioning some highly paid commercials or something, that this uh, agent said, you know, would we be interested? And we all thought that sounded like fun. So we all signed up and actually all of us got work. I did my first film when I was eight and Jane did her first film when she was six and so on. My goodness. And, And obviously Jane, who everyone knows, Jane Asher, lovely actress, carried on in the acting field. But you you kind of digressed yes well what happened was i I, you know at least my excuse is that i started to take school seriously you Mm -hmm. know i I went to westminster which as you may know is quite a sort of tough school and they certainly didn't consider giving anyone giving anyone time off to go and be in a a television show or Mm -hmm. anything so that was when my acting career sort of gradually faded whereas jane was determined and quit school at 15 or 16 or something and and announced that she was going to be an actress and proceeded to be very good at yeah, it and very, and very successful. successful yeah absolutely yeah. so when did you start because you play guitar and you play piano don't you yeah, well, a little bit. Uh, I don't really play anything properly. One of my great regrets <laughs> is how lazy I was about music lessons because, you know, I grew up in a very mm-hmm. musical household. Our mother uh, was a professional oboe player. She was had been in various of the major orchestras and was oboe professor at the Royal Academy of Music. So I, and my father was an amateur pianist uh, and big music fan. We used to all go and see Gilbert and Sullivan at his mm-hmm. insistence, which I grew to love. So music was very much part of our, our lives. And I did take piano lessons, didn't practice. I took double bass lessons for a while, didn't practice. And even the oboe I learned from, I could still quack out a, a probably a, a C major scale on the oboe if pressed, but I never mastered any of them in the slightest and, and through laziness. And then eventually I got a guitar and taught myself some chords and it was at, at Westminster School that uh, I met the, uh, another pupil there who was in the same house as me, uh, 
It's interesting because in America, <laughs> I, used to, I used to always have to explain what a house was, you know, because they didn't everybody don't have it in America. Knows, but since Harry Potter, everybody knows, you know, all you have to go, <laughs> all you have to say is it wasn't Slytherin, I promise. You know? <laughs> so Gordon and I were in the same house and I noticed him also carrying a guitar around. So we ended up talking about it. And that's when we tried singing together just to because we both sang and played. And he I was had a very limited mm-hmm. repertoire of chords. I think he knew a couple of chords. I didn't and taught me them taught me the chords so that's how that's how we met and that, that's how it began so and I took to that with great enthusiasm we did practice a lot and did you kind of go and play student bars and pubs and yes we started well, we started off we did, we would do uh school events you know and things and parties and there's a point where you know we would just sing for the fun of it and then we found ourselves getting invited to a lot of parties, which is always nice. But eventually you'd be invited to a party by someone you, you didn't even really know. And they'd say, oh, you know, come to my party on Saturday. Oh, and by the way, bring your guitars. And you eventually realize <laughs> it dawns on you, you just got booked for a free gig. <laughs> but of course, that's okay, fine. That's you know, easy. we did them all. And that's how you, you get better. And eventually... Yes, we would we would just walk into places like coffee bars and pubs and and say, "Wouldn't you like us to come play?" and and we'd do a gig for nothing and eventually get you know fight to get a pound each and a free pint of beer. I mean, in a way, it's the best training you can get, isn't it? Absolutely, yes. Because you get you know good audiences, bad audiences. You learn the way to do things or not to do things. Yeah, and you get audiences who aren't paying any attention at all. You know. it, it, where you're just background music, so you, you you get used to all of all of that stuff. Well, my first real knowledge of you was when you released "World Without Love," which became huge. Well, it wasn't it number one in England, number one in America. Yes, and yes, and yes. I'm and happy it, to say, written by Paul McCartney. Yes, also true. And that, and you met Paul through Jane, who was his girlfriend at the time, right? All correct. Yes, exactly so. <laughs> got, my hist- got my history right. <laughs> yes. No, what, what happened was uh, Jane, in a, you may know the story, but in her actress hat, uh, she, you know, she'd become, as we, as we said, very successful. And at this point, she was also more than that. She was kind of a film star and a mm-hmm. celebrity. And, and so she was invited in that guise to go and see the Beatles when they did their very first, I think their very first gig in London, certainly their first gig after they'd, broken successfully so this was probably when love me do was mm-hmm. out the first single and so on and beatlemania was was just hitting every all the girls were screaming and so they asked jane to go and see them and and write a review for, oddly enough for the radio times and again in america i have to explain what the radio times is but <laughs> <laughs> i explained we didn't need a tv guide because we only had one television station that's but, right but, exactly. but we but we did need a, a, a tv a radio times so she went to the concert she loved it, thought they were amazing, and met them all afterwards. And that's and that's one of them. They all liked each other, and Paul liked her in particular, I guess, and invited her out. So uh, that's how that all began. And eventually, he was hanging around our house a lot, you know, uh, for meals and laundry <laughs> or whatever. And uh, eventually, our, our parents said, you know, do you want to use the guest room and the top floor of the house, um, which he did, because at the time they had a flat in Green Street, Mayfair, as I recall, with all four Beatles oh, in it, which, chaos. of course, was chaos. <laughs> you know, four, four guys in a flat is chaos, any, even <laughs> if they're not Beatles. And so uh, Paul, I think, kind of liked the relative sense of order in our house. Plus, he was crazy about Jane, of course. So um, 
he ended up in in the guest room for about two years, and, and he and I shared the top floor of the house. Did he write well with that love for you, or did you hear him play it? Or I overheard it and told him I liked it, and he had explained to me that it was unfinished and that John didn't like it much. John thought the first line of lyrics was ridiculous. He thought, please lock me away was a ridiculously stupid way to start a song. And apparently he would actually interrupt Paul and say, when Paul would get as far as the first line, John would go, okay, I will lock you away. The song's over. (laughs) And so clearly the Beatles were not going to record it and Paul had abandoned it. He'd only written the verse. Then what happened is Gordon and I uh, ended up in a place called the Pickwick Club which was a much more sort of posh upmarket gig than we'd had before. It was a late night eating and drinking club. Uh, all the cool people of the day, you know, the first place time I ever met Michael Caine, Terence Stamp I met there, Joan Collins was in a lot, April Ashley, you remember her? Oh, yeah. She was the first transgender person any of us had ever met in our lives. So we're talking about, what, 60? I'm generally bad at dates, but I would what? guess that had to be 63 so what, what happened was, uh, w- while we were at the Pickwick Club, we got, as it were, discovered. That's oh. where this guy Norman Newell from EMI Records came and heard us and liked us and signed us. To cut a long story short, we did an audition and all this kind of stuff. And he picked out some songs that we did already that we did in a show at the Pickwick Club that he wanted us to record. But he also said, do you know any other good songs you know we we could use another couple of songs or two mm-hmm. we weren't planning to make an album at that point you, it was just like a one day recording session to see if we made a anything that sounded like a single and i think norman's thinking was that we were going to be sort of folky we used to do a version of 500 miles that he was very keen on and that kind of thing <laughs> um as it were peter and paul without mary or whatever you know what i mean so when he asked if i knew any other songs i thought maybe i do and that's when i went back to paul that night i think uh, shortly after we'd signed our deal and and said, you know, whatever happened to that song? Did you ever finish it? Did anyone ever do it? And he said, no and no. And I said, well, could we ever go to it? And he said, yes. I did have to, to nag him to, to finish it because he'd given us the, the lyrics and the music for the first two verses. And uh, he, t- he went into his bedroom upstairs with his guitar for, you know, an insanely, infuriatingly short, like five <laughs> minutes or something, you know. <laughs> Because we just had the Please lock me away And don't allow the day Here inside where I hide With my loneliness I don't care what they say I won't stay In a world without love And we had two verses like that But then he went into his bedroom And you know came out with the So I wait and in a while I will see my true love smile She may come I know not when When she does I'll know So baby until then And back to the verse And that was it yeah, we recorded about five songs, I think, that day in the studio. And by the end of the day, there was no question in anyone's mind that was going to be our first single. So then you went off touring and things like yes. that, did you? Yeah, exactly. It, it, we, we toured Britain first. It went to number one. And then, you know, when it went to number one in America, that was, to us, the most significant and insane moment. Oh, that's mega. You know, it's one thing for becoming famous in England, but it takes on another element when you suddenly break america and and not many people do actually no a lot of people are huge in england they can't break america and vice versa yeah well you became gigantic all over the world very very quickly well i always say that was diana vreeland who was the editress of american vogue ah right and she was like the you know the the queen of fashion and she kind of took me over to america and put me with um richard avedon 
But if she said something was it, that was it. <laughs> so right, she she defined what was cool. Yeah, yeah. So I was very famous in England, but I will say Diana Vreeland made me global. <laughs> Interesting. That's so cool. Yeah, because I guess there'd never been a, a globally f- famous model before that. I mean, they they were. I think they were I'm local. Not sure. I, yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, Jean Shrimpton was a big model, but whether she was within the fashion industry, she was. But she, I don't think she was known outside of that and in music of course not to digress too much but in music it's worth reflecting that it never happened i mean you british acts did not make it in america there were until the beatles broke the door down there was like Acker bilk had stranger on the shore if you recall that was number one in america lonnie donegan had rock island line or even worse he had i mean i loved rock island line but then he had does your chewing gum lose its flavor on the bedpost overnight and that was all that america got in the way of successful british pop music so you know that's why cliff you know never became cliff in america had a couple of hits but but so when the beatles did it it was unheard of yeah i don't think silla broke america did she and she was huge in america exactly she did have a couple of hits but but uh i mean i think you're my world i think was a hit oh yeah oh i love that see anyone who had a heart wasn't of course because it was dion warwick in america that's right because that's what happened in am i right in those days big american hits were recorded by british acts and they got they got the English hit and the American singing the yeah. blues. That was Guy Mitchell, of course. For us, was Tommy Steele. Of course, yeah, it's and so on. That. So when the Beatles went to number one in America, and well, everyone went crazy. It was that's why it it was even more important than people realised. So every act since then, you know, has has still really mm. the the doors were broken down, as I say, by the Beatles. So when did you kind of stop just being a performer? And decide to go into management and producing? Uh, There are two different answers to that question. Because the reason I became a manager and the reason I became a producer are very different. Uh, The minute I was in the recording studio for the first time, I knew I wanted to be a record producer. I loved the process of making records, the technology of it, the artistry of it, working, the idea that you could work with musicians much better than yourself and tell them what to do. I thought that was brilliant. (laughs) So I... I, you know, I specifically aimed to become a, a, a record producer and made an effort to do that, which was not easy. See, and again, it, people now wouldn't understand. But now, if you want to be a record producer, it's it's, it's easy. You get a you get a laptop, you, you know, make some beats, make, write some songs, record some stuff, say, look, here's what I can do. Do you like it? But back then, you had to have an artist who wanted you to produce them. You had to have musicians and a studio and some money, or you couldn't mm-hmm. make a record. I say money because stu- studios were expensive, weren't they? Exactly. And now you can sit in your bedroom and make great music for nothing. So yeah. uh, I, I went out looking for an opportunity and, and found one. The first record I ever produced was with Paul Jones, who you undoubtedly must know. Yes, I, I, well, I, I haven't seen him for years, but I did know Paul, and I didn't know that was your first production. I didn't know that. My, it was a song called And the Sun Will Shine that was a Bee Gees song, and Paul had just left Manfred Mann and was making a solo record and asked me if I would produce some tracks with him. He'd seen me working on some Peter and Gordon records, of which I was not officially the producer. I was just the interfering artist, but I'd already... This, I'd already decided that that's what I wanted to do. So I was learning all I could about it. So 
when Paul said, will you produce a couple of tracks? I went, yes, absolutely. And that's the first record I ever produced was that BG song. And I, I wanted to take no chances. So I put together a, 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 a good band for it, you know, because I wanted to get good musicians on my first ever record. Mm-hmm. So I had Nicky Hopkins, who you might remember playing piano, great pianist. Yeah, I do. And uh, Paul Samuel Smith on bass, who was the bass player in the Yardbirds and went on, went on to produce Carly Simon and uh, Cat Stevens. And, and he was in the Yardbirds, so I asked him to ask his pal Jeff Beck to come and play guitar, which he did. So I had Jeff Beck on guitar. Not, not a bad guitar player. <laughs> no, and, and I had Paul McCartney on drums. Paul on drums? That's interesting. Yes, he's a really good drummer. Is he? And, yeah, and so I asked him to play. I figured, you know, I, I figured he'd be, he would like to be asked to play something other than the bass for a change because I love his drumming <laughs> and uh, he's very good. And so that was, that was the first record I ever produced. And, and that was, as I say, that was a definite ambition. How I became a manager is a slightly longer story, but the short version is I discovered this guy, James Taylor. Uh, I signed him to Apple Records. We left Apple Records and all of these can be expanded into long and boring stories. But I, we left Apple Records because it was all getting weird and Alan Klein came in. James wanted to go back to America. Oh, yeah. And, and and we decided that his career was going to happen there. And I, and then we decided that I would be his manager because we didn't know anyone else we trusted or wanted to do it. And we liked each other and we worked well together. So I said, great, I'll be your manager. So my, my decision to become a manager, I became, I said, okay, I'm a manager. So and, you became a manager. And, well, but the, the, it, it relates to something else, which is people often ask me, you know, what does it take to be a great manager? And, the answer is depressingly and, 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 and simple, which is a great client. In other words, the, I, I got to induct the two first managers ever inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And not surprisingly, it was Brian Epstein and Andrew Lou Goldham, the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. So that makes it very clear what makes a great manager. If I was a good manager, it was because I had James Taylor. Well, I think you're being very modest, but um, I mean, I agree to a certain extent, but... We we've all met and 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 seen. There are creepy managers. Yeah, ones that are the creepy managers, <laughs> and it's a two way. Of course, you know, give and take, and understanding, and 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 patience. Also, because of your musical background, and being a great producer, that that must have added so much more for the artist while you were managing them. Do you know what I mean? Because lots of managers don't know anything about that part of it, the artistic side. It's very unusual that you, you had that artistic, you know. Well, that and, that and just the fact that having been an artist, I'd experienced a lot of yeah. the things managers can do wrong, you know, so. Well, I think it's like often actors often say that their favourite directors are, are directors who've acted because they understand, they see, they know the pitfalls, they know the... The neuroses, the worries. If if a director has never acted, they can't quite understand and probably think the actors are playing up. Or <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. I, no, I I I think that makes a lot of sense. That's interesting. And of course, it the the parallel that's odd is right, producing a record is like directing. Not the, even though the mm, word is producing, it's got film producers and record producers have nothing to do with each other. You know, a record producer is is the director actually because you cast it, you decide who's going to play on it, you decide what approach you're going to take, and you help the actors give the be- help the musicians give the best performance they can. Mm-hmm. 
The other one who I you blew me sideways when you found her is Linda Ronstadt. Yes, um, she's wonderful. Uh, quite. I mean, when did you first? Did somebody send you along or, or to see her? Some. Yes, exactly that. I was in New York. And somebody said, you, there's this girl playing at the bitter end in New York, said, you have to go and see her. She's amazing. Um, she's got the greatest voice you've ever heard in your life. You know, and they did happen to mention she performed barefoot in very short shorts and was insanely hot. And <laughs> <laughs> I say she's very pretty as well. Uh, exactly. So it was all true. And and uh, <laughs> I went to see her. And then when I met her and discovered that she was also one of the smartest women it's ever been my pleasure to meet, um, uh, it, you know, it was, she's, I, I talked to Linda just a couple of days ago and she, she's quite extraordinary. And, and also I, I do freely admit that I've, lo- I've had the great pleasure of working with some amazing singers with extraordinary voices, but just as a singer, I, I do say Linda is the best singer I ever worked with in my life. She's just amazing. Oh, how interesting. Cause you have worked with some killers. <laughs> Yes, I have, yeah. And and I love them all. But, uh, but and I love, I, I've generally always loved singers where in a couple of notes you can tell who it is. I was just going to say that what's brilliant about the people you've recorded, you they, they're so individual. Do you know what I mean? You know, exactly. you know Cher. I, with one note, exactly. you know Cher. Diana Ross, you Yeah, know. Diana, I mean, I remember the first time, you know, I was, I produced her. We knew each other socially vaguely, but not that well. And, so it's it's extremely intimidating, you know. So because she's Diana Ross, and so you and you and you hear that scary, scary. I've ne- I've never met her, but my, I mean, there's there's big singers, and then there's the giants, and she's one of the giants. Right, and you hear you hear scary stories about you know call me Miss Ross or any of that stuff. No, none of that. <laughs> she was totally charming. And but the the weirdest part oh. is, you know, you're ready getting ready to actually do the song. She goes out to the mic and sings, and it's like. Oh my God! It sounds exactly like Diana Ross, <laughs> you know, and and all those Supremes records that are so ingrained into our oh soul. And she's I she's see. got that voice, you know, and she's wonderful. She she's a great singer too. She each take she would try different phrasing and stuff. She was really in, exploratory wonderful. in terms of her phrasing and performance. And uh, no, she's she's great, amazing. Amazing, and you know, and 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 share. Yeah, share. I love share. I mean that that's such you know it's such a unique voice. I love her voice so much. And me too. And it, I was I was I think I told you I I interviewed or talked to um, Judy Kramer who produced the Mamma Mia stage shows and the film, and we were talking about how amazing share was in Mamma Mia. Yep. And and then she went off and recorded a whole load of um Abba songs and they're fantastic. Yeah, she's Her she's take on them. Well, she's so brilliant. I mean, every time people would go, you know, she'd she'd have a huge hit record, then she'd go and make a movie and win an Oscar, and then she'd go back and make another hit record. <laughs> it's like what? And every time she would do that, people would go, oh, you can't move back. You know, you can't do both and and she would just do it. I know. know. She's well, she's it's amazing. Like, you know, I I you know, I I grew up with that thing or you if you're a model you can't do anything else right but because i'm from Neesd and i didn't listen <laughs> exactly they bre- they breed them tough down in the east end right? <laughs> now i know later on you you went in very high up at sony records didn't you yes uh at that time um, a man called tommy matola was the new boss at sony and uh I ran into him at dinner one night in New York and he said, what are you doing? And I told him, you know, it's 
I was managing James and Linda and this, that, and the other. And he said, come and talk to me. And um, it, essentially, he essentially said, come in and be a vice president of, of Sony Music. <laughs> Not bad. And, and I went, oh, okay. And <laughs> it, I generally... I think if there's one consistent thing that if I was going to try and take credit, credit for anything in particular in my career, it's that when opportunities turn up, I do tend to sort of grab them with both hands and jump, you know. It's like at the very beginning when I kind of bet my career on James, you know, where I just set off to America saying, I'm, I'm James Taylor's manager. Nobody knew him. We didn't have any money. Um, you know, it was, uh, we just, I just kind of went for it. And so I tend, when people go, want to try this? I tend to go, yep. <laughs> But that's what's so brilliant about all the things you've done. And was it, I mean, because Sony is a very, very big corporate world that you, you haven't really been involved anything with anything that corporate before, had you? Correct. No, was it, was, it, weird? It, was a, it was very different. Was it weird? Or? It was weird, yes. I mean, it was weird. Um, no, it, it, it's a different world entirely. I remember, you know, when, when I first, they showed me my office and, you know, and I said, great, you know, there's... Um, uh, I mean, little things. You know, I, I was, I, I said, "Oh, I'm going to go and get some picture hooks and hang some these pictures and gold records and crap up on the walls." You know, and they went, "Oh, no, 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 no!" I said, "Just press call number seventy-two for maintenance, and <laughs> the guy will come with the tape measures and the and the picture hooks and the hammers." And he, no, don't, you don't, you, don't you know. I was about to, I was going to go and buy picture hooks and start hanging things. Went, no, no, no. <laughs> You know, and I went, oh, this is different. Because, of course, when I had my own management company, you know, it would be me buying yeah, picture exactly. hooks, and, but <laughs> not anymore. They probably got this mad Englishman hanging his own pictures. It's, just call the picture <laughs> hooks department, you know. <laughs> That's hysterical. And, Absolutely. So, and that was the, my first warning that, oh, this is different, you know. But I did a lot of, uh, I worked a lot with our international companies because, you know, what happens is, you know, America finally was just starting to realize, which is something I felt very strongly about, that the rest of the world is worth paying attention to, which America tends to not do very much. You know, and in the music business, America used to be half the sales in the world. That's right. And the other, and the rest of the world was the other half. And that's gone. It's, America's 20% or something now. So it, this was clear to me. So I did try. We signed a band called Silverchair in Australia who were fantastic and became huge and, and actually broke in America as well. So, And Oasis, of course, from England, who I didn't directly sign. But I mean, that was... I, I did succeed in getting there to be a quite a bit more emphasis on looking let's outside. not ignore what the rest yeah. of the world Although has. I, I have to say in, 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 you know, what happened to me, the, the Americans were so lovely to me and they welcomed me in with open arms, which if they like you in America, like I think they did with you, you know, America's been very good to me. Yes, America's very hospitable. But in terms of American business, they did tend to think, you know, we, we're, if, if, we're, if we do well in America, that's okay, you know, but that's, that's good enough. And, and in, whereas the rest of the world always looked at conquering overseas markets, particularly America, of course. So that's why, you know, if you have a British company or a, a, you're a British act or whatever, you, you look at the rest of the world because you're looking at America to start with, you know, whereas America did tend to be a little bit self-satisfied about the American market will do. You know, and and but I think now that's changing a lot, and people are looking very seriously. Obviously, now they're looking at China and India and all the places that they've suddenly realised there's a trillion billion people in who who are ready to be customers. You know, well, it's like the South American market is huge, isn't it? You know, with people like Gloria Estefan and that when that when they kind of broke, but they're huge in 
South America, which is must be an enormous market, isn't it? It is it, again country by country it varies, but but yes, and then uh, I mean Linda actually achieved some success there, of course, because because we did those records in you know the Mexican mariachi albums, which did did extraordinarily well in America. It's still the, the biggest selling Spanish language album in America of all time. Yeah, is it? How wonderful! Wow, that's amazing. I'm not surprised. It's bloody brilliant. Now you you did a book last year, was it? I did. Yes. Well, it began because I do this radio show on Sirius XM. Well, the only reason I'm doing it in that order is that the radio show gave birth to the book. Oh, okay. So tell us about the radio thing. The radio show is is um, about the Beatles. It's I called it from me to you. I got a, a call from Sirius XM asking me if I'd be interested in doing it. I I, re- I checked, of course, that this was coming from Apple and from the Beatles. You know, and not, you know, that they were in oh, on okay. it, and and they said yes, absolutely, yes, yes. We suggested you, and the, oh, yeah, we'd nice. we'd like you to do this. So that's when I went, okay, I'm in. So I started doing the radio show, uh, which has become quite sort of successful. And oh, you're so modest, and, uh, it's really successful. <laughs> uh, thank you, and and then because uh, I I've haven't done the the autobiography so far, I've declined that that opportunity though it's i still may or may oh, not eventually should. one day who knows but it's such an amazing maybe life some. anyway go on and and but they came but these publishers were pursuing me to have lunch and i was saying no thank you thanks for the lunch offer but i'm not doing an autobiography and they went no no we have a completely different idea and i went okay let's have lunch so we did and it, they said i'd done a series of shows within my radio show i did a series of episodes the beatles from a to z mm-hmm. Uh, using the alphabet, not just for song titles, but for people and places and musical styles and song titles and everything. So using the alphabet the way Sesame Street does, <laughs> just as a jumping off point, you know. So uh, they said, we think those episodes of the show would make good chapters in a book. We think that's a book. Brilliant. So that's why we have the book. Um, it's great cover. Yeah, it's it's well, good. Unfortunately, uh, this is audio, but it's a great cover of the Young Beatles. And um, was it fun to do? It was because it's yes. quite a lot I of mean, work putting a book together, isn't it? It's it's much more work than I expected. Because my first thought was, well, that's easy because I've already done it on the radio. It'll you know we'll just transcribe everything I said for each letter. We and and so that was indeed the basis of it. But of course, what happens is when you read, and in, in, when you write down on a piece of paper everything you said on the radio it's not as brilliant as you thought it was it's it's <laughs> it, it and you and, it, and you want to rewrite rewrite everything which is what i did so i did have to re and also on the radio of course you talk about a song or a musician or whatever and then you play it oh of course but you can't do that in a book in you a book. talk about it <laughs> and then you talk about it some more so, so so yes it 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 turned out to be a lot of work now you started touring because uh, sadly um, Gordon died, didn't he? And then you linked up with Jeremy Clyde. Yes. What happened was Gordon and I, uh, you know, stopped working together in '68 or something when I started working with James and so on. We never actually had a big, huge breakup. We never had a punch up on stage like the Everlys did or any <laughs> of that stuff. So we, I gradually started just a, what we thought was sort of a, a hiatus. And but as the di- Years went by and then the decades went by. We thought uh, that was it. And it was actually Paul Schaefer. If you know Paul Schaefer, the keyboard player for the Dave Letterman show and a brilliant musician. 
he was putting together a benefit for his friend Mike Smith from the Dave Clark Five, if you recall. Yeah, because he had a terrible accident, didn't he? Yes, exactly. So uh, Paul Schaefer called me and said, you know, what are the chances we could get Peter and Gordon back together for one show for a benefit for Mike Smith? And I went, maybe this is the time to say yes. And because Gordon and I hadn't sung together in, for 27 years at that point. Oh, God. So uh, I asked Gordon, who I knew would want to do it. And, and we decided to say yes. We did that benefit together. We re- had to rehearse for quite a bit to get after 27 years of, <laughs> of uh, not working. And so we did that show. It went well. People liked it. We liked it. We had a good time. So we started doing gigs here and there. And that was about two years before Gordon died. Oh. So we did a bunch of gigs, and I'm glad we did. Gordon died. And at that point, it was kind of like, well, does that mean I'm never going to do these songs again or what? And so I put together a show, what I called a memoir show, with bits of video, bits of audio, uh, pictures, uh, me singing songs, me talking, all that stuff. And I've done that show since then, and I came up with a variation of it uh, when Chad Stewart from Chad and Jeremy retired, so that Jeremy Clyde was on his own, and we suddenly went, oh, what the hell, you know, it's, it's, since I'm with the leftovers, you know, the, the, the you know, because Gordon was no longer with us and Chad had, had retired. So we decided, well, well, we'll be Peter and Jeremy, which was which we don't do all the time. But every now and then we do some Peter and Jeremy shows. And it's fun because, you know, I get to sing Summer Song and Yesterday's Gone. And see, they the difference was they didn't really have much in the way of hits in the UK. They're not that well known. But in America, we were very, they were very successful. So Well, I know Jeremy because, I um, mean, in- I think it's about 2004, uh, Peter Hall, you know, Sir Peter, the director, yes, cast me course, as Mrs. Warren course. in Mrs. Warren's profession. And we toured with it uh, in England. And Jeremy was, you know, the male lead in that. So we, we, we got I'd on forgotten. brilliantly. I loved him. He's such a nice guy. He's terrific. He, he's, he's brilliant and he's a wonderful actor and a good and singer. And he was always playing, you know, you know, when you're on the road after the show, you know, people going to each other's dressing room. He always had his guitar and he'd sing and he's such a lovely chap. He totally is. So we have fun doing that. And, he, you know, he gets to sing Peter and Gordon songs. I get to sing Chad and Jeremy songs. So it's fun. Oh, that's so lovely. Have you got any words of wisdom for young people who are, you know, the world of music has changed so much. The world of, you know, the record companies aren't the thing that you have to have anymore, are they? I mean, no, you don't. I don't, exactly. I don't know how to advise people because people often ask but it is hard in some ways it's got easier you know uh it's a it's a double effect i mean it's always been about word of mouth the success in the music business it's always been people telling their friends and the difference is when you and i you or i used to go to a gig you know we would come home and maybe phone three or four friends and tell them how great it was where we would buy a new a record that we fell in love with. You know, at most I would like make a cassette of three or four songs to send to some girl I was trying to impress or whatever, you know, something. But now, of course, you can come home and tell a million people how great the gig was. Or you can tell a million people, which is great. But of course, so can everybody else. So, <laughs> so it means we're all being bombarded with recommendations and stuff all the time. And so when people ask me, should I be trying to get a record deal? Should I try to get a manager? Should I try to get a lawyer? Should I be sending out my music? Should I be doing live gigs? The answer is yes. 
Uh, in other words, that you've got to do all of them all the time. Do you think that's the best way to go to do live gigs? So you 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 know you get into. What practice. I'm saying is essentially, I'm not picking a best way. I'm going okay. do all those things. You know, uh, do if you if you're able to do live gigs, do live gigs. I mean. Uh, if you know anyone in the film business, should you be sending them your songs because they might fit into a movie or a TV show? Should, you know, every, just anything you can think of, the answer is do it. Yeah, because then, you know, like what's happened over the last, I don't know, big people do break out like Adele, like Ed Sheeran. You know, occasionally one becomes mammoth. Yes, and if you if you talk to Ed, you know he's he's the hardest working man in show business. You know, he he really is. I mean, if you talk to him, which you should do, and I'd love to. I don't I don't know him. I'm I'm loving. He's great. I we I, I I got in touch with him very early on because I when I first heard him in the in England before he made it in America, and I actually got in touch through Elton because you know Elton who knows everybody anyways you very well know and and Elton Elton's management company managed Ed at the oh, beginning I and, see. I didn't and know that. Elton was a helped Ed a lot and so I I got in touch with Ed and said look I think I know a good singer songwriter when I hear one and you're yeah. it you know and and uh, we we I got to work together on this Elton project with him and he we I got to produce a version of Candle in the Wind with Ed oh, which was fun lovely. and wonderful and but the point is you ask when you look at his early career he had done something like 2000 gigs before he got signed wow i didn't know that he he would work all the time and he, he was busking cinema cues he would he would record stuff and send it to everybody he did everything Amazing. i mean his his success is a result of a, yes a fortunate huge amount of talent but but also insanely hard work and absolute determination yeah. and steely ambition. He's got it all. Amazing. I did talk to um, uh, Amy Wodge. Do you know Amy? I do. She I love Amy. gorgeous. And I, yeah. I fell madly in love with her songwriting. She, did, she wrote the music for a wonderful um, TV series here called Keeping Faith. Oh, right. Which I became obsessed with and the song. So I, 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 I asked her to do this show and she she did it and and she was talking about how lovely ed because they wrote a thinking out loud i think was theirs and yes she's wonderful writing and the one they won the 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 grammy for. i think that was it yeah great song uh yeah she's she's terrific so there are there are ways of breaking through it just... i think so and i think it, 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 it's an era when you just don't be precious about your music, you know. Uh, people people will say, you know, well, I don't know if, if somebody else wants to record it, should I let them? And yes, you can write another one, you know, yes, go for it. it. <laughs> uh, you know, um, and all that stuff, you know, so just keep at it. Have you been reading any good books through lockdown? I just read a, a book called Utopia Avenue. Uh, by David Mitchell, uh, who's a, a very good writer. He's a, a highly thought of. It was a Booker Prize nominee and all that kind of stuff. But what you would find interesting, it's, it, it's about a, a band um, in the 60s and 70s, an imaginary band. Oh. But it's one of those situations where it's an imaginary band, but in real circumstances with other real people showing up in the book, you know. Um, oh, okay. And uh, it addresses 60s London, I can't remember if you're in it. I don't think you are, but you might be because there's a lot of references. To... <laughs> usually, if it's exactly, you show up somewhere. <laughs> I, sh I usually get, I usually get a nod. Exactly. <laughs> you know what I was trying to think of when I thought when, when I as we were dialing into you, 
because I've we've known each other for so long. Can you remember when we actually first met? No. It's got to be so far back. I don't think I met you in the 60s. I think it was I later. I wonder. Yeah, maybe we didn't. We should. We, you'd think we would have had to somewhere. I know. But you'd think uh, our paths must have crossed because I knew Paul quite well. Yeah, I know. The 60s, we must have been circling around each other, you know, <laughs> at, at opposite so. ends of San Lorenzo or whatever it was. Yeah, <laughs> you know, exactly. There's so many places we would have met and should have met. Oh, well, thank you so much for taking time out of your breakfast. Yes, exactly. So early there. I, I'm going to go you and re- go, you refill. Can, you can go and have your toast now. I can go and <laughs> refill my PG tips and get the marmite out. Right? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, go and have your toast and your PG tips. All right, I will. <laughs> and I'll talk to you. So hopefully we get to see you soon. Yeah, that was, that was so much fun. Thank you very much, Sweetie. Oh, thank you. Bye. Bye. Oh, I really enjoyed talking to Peter. I often see him when he's in London, but because of the lockdown and what's going on, I haven't seen him for ages. So it was nice to catch up and hear his amazing career. I mean, I knew most of it, but amazing. Anyway, I really enjoyed it. I hope you did too. If you've enjoyed listening to Tea with Twiggy, please take a moment to give us a lovely five-star rating on Apple Podcasts It really helps other people to find the show. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe to this podcast so you auto-magically get the next episodes for free. And do tell all your friends and family about it too. If you want to connect with me, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me on Twitter at Twiggy or you can find me on Instagram at Twiggy Lawson. My thanks go to all the people that have helped this podcast happen. Many thanks to James Carroll and all the team at North Bank Talent Management. Thanks to all the team at Stripped Media, including Ben Williams, who edits the show, my producer, Kobe Omanaka, and executive producers, Tom Wally and Dave Corkery. The music you can hear now is my version of Waterloo Sunset by The Kinks. If you'd like to hear the whole song, you can find it and all the other songs I've recorded on iTunes and Spotify. So check it out. I look forward to you joining me for my next episode. So see you then. Bye. You just heard a stripped media production. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip (laughs) off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel-Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.